Well, if you have your Bible, you can begin to make your way to the book of Luke. When we started Luke 12 weeks ago, uh, we skipped over the Christmas passages until Advent. So we're in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning as you begin to make your way there. Um, you know, they say getting old is not for the faint of heart. Uh, and the older you get, you'll realize the truth in that. Uh, like, for example, re, uh, you can get injured uh, sleeping. Yeah, I bet you didn't know that. I, I know that now. Uh, ask me how. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like, what? I can't look to the left now uh, because, yeah, this happens. Uh, the other thing that happens is when you do get injured, um, whereas when you were younger, you, you know, you'd, you'd heal like two days later. Uh, I've got a sprained ankle for like six years now. And... Uh, my wife says I should go to the doctor, but nevertheless, I'm like, what's going on? Why is it this fixing itself? Uh, so, so there are some downsides. Uh, earlier this week, I was talking to a friend. He was looking at a, a ministry job, and he was describing the role. And he's like, yeah, my boss, he, you know, he's, he's an older man. And he was like, oh, oh, he's in his 40s. And I was like, hey, uh, I'm 48. Uh, he caught himself, but too late. Uh, but, but there are benefits, and the Bible talks about benefits as you age. Hopefully with experience comes some uh, wisdom and some insight. Uh, and as I, as I get older and uh, continue in ministry, one of the things that is just a growing appreciation uh, for me is just the honesty of, of the Bible. <laughs> the, just uh, the honesty of the Bible in dealing with the realities of this world. I'm not talking about like uh, what, what, what we like. We pick our favorite verses, put them on tattoos or put them on a mug or make a, a quilt out of it. I'm talking about like the whole thing deals with the fact that this world is a broken world. There is questions, there's suffering, there's sickness, there's death, there's betrayal, that there's uh, sin that just continues to roll out. And the Bible is going to deal with that constantly. In fact, the oldest book of the Bible is, you may not know this, is probably is the book of Job. And the book of Job is just, just this long, like, philosophical and theological, like, uh, exploration of the problem of pain and evil and suffering. How do we reconcile the goodness of God and the, the, the fact that our world seems broken all the time? You know, uh, the, the, the prayer book or the, the worship manual of the Bible, the book of Psalms, uh, 150 Psalms, uh, uh, 65 of them, 40% of them are, are what are called Psalms of Lament. There are psalms where uh, the men and women of God, by the, the Spirit of God, would, would write out these cries out to God. Sometimes accusations against God. Like, like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Like, like the, here, here's someone that wants to have this amazing life and relationship with God, but he, it feels like there's just silence when he prays. And there's 65 of those. So, so apparently, uh, God, God understands. God knows that this world is broken. And so the Bible's honest. And at the same time, on the other end of that spectrum, uh, there are some promises from God. And for some unbelievable promises of God that seem almost too good to be true. Like, how do you reconcile these things? The, the world we live in and the pain and suffering that we face and the betrayal and, and the struggle in our relationships and our addictions and all these things. And then there's these promises of God. Here's what, what's, what's coming. And, and it seems like sometimes the gap is, is so far. But, well, 
we enter into Advent this year. And Advent is this season in the church calendar where we try to hold both of those tensions together. The world is broken. The world is dark. There is suffering. uh, And none of us gets out of here unscathed. And yet, God has some promises. God has some amazing promises that that have come true, that are coming true, that will come true. And in Advent, we we live in the tension. It's this time to, to kind of sit in that. To wrestle with that. Today we're going to look at our passage. We're going to wrestle with what do we do with the promises of God in light of the world that we live in? What are they there for? Like why does God make promises? He's God. He doesn't even need to make the promise. He could just fix it all right now. So so why are there promises? What do we do with the promises that if we're honest with ourselves seem more like fairy tales than realities that are solid and yet to come. So we, we wrestle with these. Now, I don't know where you're at in, in, in this whole thing today, but I know that every time we gather that there are some struggles uh, of faith. There's some struggles of, uh, of relationships. There's struggles, health. There's, there's a whole bunch of pain and, and suffering under the surface that we can't see with each other. And, and for you, the promises are either a, a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you wrestle with those. A lot of us are, are doing well, and so the promises don't seem that important. But but, but Advent is this time to pause and, and recognize and recenter, recalibrate our lives to what is true in light of the world we live in. And so we live in the tension. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, but Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, has a context to it, as the whole Bible does. Uh, before we get to the promises that are, are starting to unfold in Luke chapter 5, we've got to remember that they find their root all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. When God comes to Abram and Sarah, and he says, uh, you're going to be, a, 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 you're going to have a, a baby, even though you're 75, your wife's 65, uh, you're going to have a baby uh, way past the age, um, and it's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And your offspring are going to be more than the stars in the sky. And, and, and so Abram believes God. It's counted to him as righteousness. But then he waits and he waits and he waits and they wait and they wait. Uh, and now he's 99, 24 years later when that promise finally comes true. She's 90. This is incredible. But then it unrolls, and the rest of the Old Testament is this series of peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys. God, God uh, making promises, uh, his people uh, trying to hold on for a little while, but then things happen, life hits, and they, they, they begin to scramble and, and look for life in other places apart from God. And God pursues them, pursues them, pursues them, sometimes this is, disciplines them. The northern kingdom gets scattered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom gets taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. A remnant returns. And God continues to send prophet after prophet after prophet, both warning them and calling them back. Don't forget the promises. Finally, he sends one last prophet. His name is Malachi. Malachi comes and he, he basically summarizes uh, the, the whole Old Testament. And he shows that in, in their own strength, the people of God cannot keep the covenant promises on their end. 
And even though they are unfaithful, God will be faithful. He will deal with sin. He will uh, make the world right again. uh, And he will maintain his righteousness and justice in that. And then at the very end of Malachi, the very last words of the Old Testament, these last verses are written by Malachi. I'll put them on the screen here. It says this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is is the judgment of God where he will bring his righteousness totally. But before that day comes, Elijah is going to come back. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So you feel the tension there. Uh, Elijah is coming. And so when when Malachi lifts his pen off that, then uh, there's silence. The people receive that. In my Bible, you've you've just got this blank page, and then it says the New Testament. That represents a 400-year gap. Silence. A generation goes by. Another generation goes by. Generation after generation goes by. And there's no new word from God. No new prophet. No new promise. Uh, it doesn't seem like the promises are being fulfilled at all. And, and, and just continued darkness. In the year 360, a, a Roman general named Pompey the Great rolls into Jerusalem and conquers the land. And it just seems like things have gone bad, from bad to worse. They, they put in a, a puppet uh, king uh, kind of on behalf of Rome named Herod. He's a half-Jewish guy. Um, he does some good things and he does some horrible things. One of the good things he does is he rebuilds the temple. But, but there's still just this silence for another 40 years. 400 years of silence. And then we come to our passage, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. The names in this passage make, they mean something. So, so the Lord remembers. This is, this is a theme throughout the Bible. The Lord remembers. He hasn't forgotten his people. And so he calls Zechariah, the Lord remembers, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So you've got Zechariah and Elizabeth. They have their, their, their roots, their heritage in the priestly class of ancient Israel. And they've come down the line. It says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, Luke doesn't mean that they didn't have any need for salvation. It just means that with their life, they leaned into the promises of God. They leaned into the law of God. When they sinned, they offered the right sacrifices for their sin. They, they were faithful people. Now, it's important that, that you know that up front because the next line doesn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense to the first readers. Because they had this worldview of how, uh, what happens when you're faithful and what does God do for you when you're faithful? What happens when you're not faithful and what does God do to you when you're not faithful? And, and the next verse is what would be so confusing. Verse 7. says, so they were faithful, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees, but, but what? But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. In a culture that, that says, oh, you want the blessings of God? Be faithful to God, and then he'll bless you. If he's not blessing you, it must be something in you. It must be some secret sin. 
forget the fact that the world is broken and we all live in the brokenness of the world and, and it, it shows up in different ways. Uh, for, for, for decades now, this faithful couple have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, please, just all we want is a, a baby. And so they felt the pain of every month when that didn't come. And then they felt the pain of the whispers and the accusations and the looks from everyone else. It was a double hit, a double blow. This is, this is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah, the Lord remembers, division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. So, so, so here's the deal. There were 24 divisions of priests with about a thousand priests in it. So there's 24,000 priests in Israel at this time. And, and each division would serve two weeks a year. They, they would go into Jerusalem and they would serve in various capacities as priests around the temple. And then all the priests, all 24,000 would serve another four weeks at all the major festivals, uh, slaughtering all the land at Passover, for example, just it, that was a bloodbath. Uh, but th- this is how they would serve. So it was just uh, there, there two weeks. It was time, time for Zechariah to go down and, and he goes down to serve before the Lord. He's, we're told already that he's very old. His wife is, is very old as well. Verse 9. He was chosen by lots. Think uh, Old Testament dice. They rolled the dice according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, now we read that. We're like, okay, no big deal. No, this is a huge, huge deal. Like one of the things that I've been praying for us and for myself this week, as we, as we kind of just join the, the saints uh, in the first, in this scene is notice their zeal for God. Notice their awe for the things of God. Notice how they approach worship. And so if you were a priest and twice a day, the priest would, would go into the temple, which was fashioned after the tabernacle. If you remember from the book of Exodus, uh, they, they would go in and twice a day they would go in and there was uh, in the temple, very simple, giant, massive room. Uh, you'd go in and on, on one side, you'd have uh, the candle uh, that, that kind of lit the whole place and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the other side, there'd be this kind of bench thing with uh, bread on it that represent what God did for them in the wilderness, God's presence with them, the, the bread of God. And then there would be this altar of incense. And in front and behind the altar of incense was this giant, thick, purple curtain. And behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies, where, where once a year, the high priest would go in trembling and offer uh, the sacrifice and, and confess the sins of the people on, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But, but twice a day, uh, a priest was chosen to go into the holy place to offer up this uh, incense at the altar of incense. It represented uh, the, the constant prayers going up to God and God smelling the fragrant aroma of his people praying to him. Uh, but but you, you would do this if the lot came to you, it would be the only time in your life that you ever go into the temple. Once you got selected, that was it. But the other thing was, this was a huge, huge honor. So, so Zechariah, who uh, maybe has some secret sin that he hasn't confessed, that's why he hasn't had a kid, all of a sudden gets the lot fallen to him. And they're like, this doesn't make sense. Why is God showing his uh, abundant favor on him? This would change his life. He would always be known as one of the guys that got to go in the temple. They would ask him about it. Tell us about that moment. You got to go into the holy place to worship 
And that wasn't the only one and only time that that, that, that uh, the only unique thing about that time. If you got to go into the temple and you perform the ceremony, after you come out, you stand at the top of the stairs and we'll see there's uh, gathered worshipers all around that have been praying fervently while you were in the temple. And when you do that, you get to uh, give the benediction. Again, we're like, so what? We do a benediction every day? No, this is a huge deal. Because when you give the benediction, this is uh, Numbers uh, 6.24, where it says, the Lord bless you. It'll say it soon. <laughs> we got it? <laughs> okay. Well, you can, you can follow me. I, I want them to see it because there's a special. Is it not in there? What? No? <laughs> there's a reason I want them to see it. There we go. You tracking with me today, man? Okay, we got it. All right. The reason I want you to see this is because we've heard this. Sometimes we use this as our benediction. We said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And you're like, yeah. But, but notice in our Bibles, we have Lord, all caps. And what that is, is that's a signal to us that it actually doesn't say Lord. It says the divine name. And we get this from, from the Jewish tradition. You don't just say the divine name. They would replace uh, the divine name when, whenever they'd say it with Adonai. Because they didn't want to misspeak the, word, the name of the Lord. But there was one time, one time in your whole life where you would say the divine name. You would come out of the temple after offering the altar of incense and you would say the, three times in your, the three times you would say the divine name. This is the only time in your life. Again, do you sense the reverence, the awe of God? This is, this is what, what they sense. So this would have been a huge blessing and, and gift to Zechariah. It says verse 10. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So, so while many in Israel had waited 400 years and were like, we're out. We don't believe it. There was still a remnant that were persevering. And when they come to worship, they're not even going into the place, but they are gathered and they are fervently, fervently praying. Even as, as Zechariah, an old man, both, both because he's old, but because he's got a tremendous joy and a tremendous fear taking each step up the temple as they're, as they're going in. There's this, this crowd praying for him because he's going to offer worship. And here's what the tradition says that they prayed the whole time. They would repeat, God of mercy, come into your holy sanctuary and receive with pleasure the offering of your people. And they would just pray this fervently. God of mercy, God of mercy, come into your holy sanctuary. Receive with pleasure the offering of your holy people. And we see something about worship too. Worship's not about you. It's about God. Worship's not about our preferences. It's about God's preferences. So anyone that's like, oh, I can't go to that church because I don't like the worship, you've missed the whole point of worship. It's about God. And they understand that. And they're leaning in. Lord, be pleased by our worship. Be pleased by our worship. And, and he goes in and he goes 
and experiences this incredible blessing. And, and as he walks into this dark room, just lit by some candles, he goes to the, the altar of incense that he's never seen before in his life because it's his one and only time. And he's trembling. Uh, he, he's, he's got the instructions. Okay, what do I do with the coals? And how, how do I do this? I don't want to mess any of this up. And he knows just beyond the curtain is the holy place where God's manifest presence dwells with his people. And so he's trembling as he's doing this in the middle of his trembling, or maybe right when he's finished. We see verse 11. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now we know this angel from later in the context. His name is Gabriel. It means the mighty one of God. He's an angelic host who spends his days in the presence of the holy God. He is terrifying in his awesomeness and grandeur. And he shows up and it says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Like he's probably wetting himself and on the floor at this point, right? We all would be, if Zechariah just said, Mark, I'll take it from here, boom. Like we'd be undone in that moment. This is, this is crazy. He's gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. This number one command by angels to people because we would be terrified. They're not babies in diapers. I guess I'd be terrified by that too. But uh, it says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. This is interesting. What prayer? Prayer for, for like what all good Jews would pray? The Lord send your Messiah? Well, yes, I think so. Well, what about the prayer for a baby? It says you're very old. You're, you're probably like Abraham and Sarah old. Well, well, those prayers, yeah, we prayed those every night when we were first married. And then we, fled our, we flooded our bed with tears and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And slowly we just stopped praying those prayers. I mean, we were well past that. Like it's been decades since we prayed that prayer. And we're past that. But... Gabriel's like, no, no, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. You, you don't name him Zechariah, even though the Lord does remember. You name him John means God is gracious. The Lord remembers. God is gracious. He will, and then he just continues to pour out this good news to Zechariah. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that what all of us as parents want? Our kids to be great in the sight of the Lord? He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Again, we take the Holy Spirit for granted. Because in Christ we have the Spirit. But but prior to that, the Spirit would come and go uh, to uh, give people power and accomplish the purposes of God. Uh, but, but now he's saying, uh, when, when your son is in the womb, the Holy Spirit's going to empower his life. This is incredible. He will bring many, bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And now we see 400 years of silence picks up right where it left off. Malachi chapter 4 is being fulfilled. The promise is coming true, verse 17. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Like this just got better and better and better and better. This is an incredible promise. It's an incredible promise. So then the question is, how does Zechariah respond to the promise of God? As, an un, as incredible as it is. Well, we know later from the context, he responds with unbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Again, you could read that in different tones. But Gabriel is going to show us that the tone is unbelief. How can I be sure of this? I'm old. My wife's older than me. There's no way that could happen. This is different than when Gabriel next week will make this, uh, a similar miraculous announcement of a birth coming to uh, Mary. She also says, hey, this is, this is incredible. So, so it's one thing to say, as Zechariah, that's impossible. Mary's going to say, that's impossible. Tell me how it's going to happen. That there's one leaning into that. Like, well, I don't know how that happened. And, and then there's Zechariah. But before we're too hard on Zechariah, let me ask you. What do you do with the incredible promises of God to you? Let me just mention two of them. So the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. When when Paul is talking about just the incredible promise of God, that there is nothing in in all the universe, angels or demons, height nor depth, nothing able to separate us from the love of God, that that God, Romans 8, 28, for, for those that love God, and are called according to his purposes, God works together for good all things. What do you do with that promise? That, that whatever is in your life right now, if you are called by God and loved by God, he is working out for your eternal good and joy and his glory. What do you do with that promise? Do you believe it? Are you indifferent to it? Meh, my life's pretty good. Maybe when I need it, I'll come to that verse. Do you lean into it? Does it change you at all? It's meant to change you. Okay, let, let's talk about another promise. There's many to you and to me. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ. So you're, you're going through life. You're trying to fall, but, but it doesn't seem like you're making any progress. It doesn't seem like you're, you're going anywhere. Uh, but God says, no, no, I'm going to complete what I started. Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that? But when it seems like life is just struggle, is that a promise that gives you life? Or are you like, meh? Or are you like, Zechariah, I don't think so. I look at my life, it doesn't seem like that could possibly be true. Zechariah doesn't handle it well. But God is gracious to him in a severe way. He's still gracious to him. Gabriel, now again, Gabriel is, is not all-knowing. He's just been sent by God from the throne room of God to earth to give the most incredible good news to a person that he could ever imagine. Gabriel's like, this is going to be awesome. Let me tell you all the good things. And when Zechariah's like, nah, I don't think so. Gabriel's like, dude, <laughs> that, do, do you know who you're talking to? You want a sign? Look at what Gabriel says. I am Gabriel, the mighty one of God. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this gospel, good news. Like, what do, you, what do you mean you need a sign? A minute ago, you were wetting yourself and you're on the ground. What more do you want? And he says, and now you're looking for a sign. Okay, you will be silent, not able to speak until the, 
the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true (laughs) at their appointed time. This is God's severe mercy, but it is a mercy. Listen, listen, it's far more a fearful thing if God just ignores you in your sin. In fact, the book of Romans tells us one of the ways that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven is he just lets people do what they want. There's no call to repentance. There's no like prick of the conscience. There's no turning back. Oh, go ahead. Do what you want. The punishment is the sin. Keep going. But for those God loves, he says, I'm not going to let you just live in rebellion to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you back. I'm going to discipline you. It's, it's God's love that disciplines us. So Zechariah's discipline is his silence. Look what it says. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. They're, they're praying this prayer. Again, remember, God of mercy, come into your sanctuary. They're going on for a while now. They're like, what happened to this old dude? Is he dead? Like, what do we do? Like, he's got to come out. And the, but they're praying, right? Man, oh, that we, you know, Charles Spurgeon in, in the 1800s had amazing ministry. But he would say, it's not my preaching. It's not the choir. It's not the worship. It's the people that gather every service underneath the church and are praying for the service of the church. Oh, that we would have that at Redemption Park. It's someone praying for our services. That would be amazing. Well, they're praying. They're praying. They're waiting. Finally, Zechariah comes out. They're like, okay. And in that moment, the one time in his life, he gets to give the benediction and he gets to say the divine name. Silence. He can't speak. He can't speak. He's being disciplined. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When he, his time of service had, was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and check this out, and for five months remained in seclusion. That's an interesting note by Dr. Luke. Why? Because here's this poor lady who's been faithful, just trying to serve God with her life, just wants a baby. And every time she goes out, she hears the whispers. She sees the accusation and she's like, oh, I'm pregnant now, but I'm not going to go one more day of people looking down at me. I'm not going to feel their judgment at all for five months. I'm just going to be in seclusion until I got my little baby bump. And then I'm going to go out there. Ta-da. She probably didn't say that, but you know what I'm saying? Like she wanted to show like, look at me now. Look at me now. She says it as well. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The shame is gone. The promises is coming true. Well, what do we do with the promises of God? Again, Advent is this time where we join these two realities. Advent is not just uh, what we've made Christmas to be in America. Oh, that day that's coming, we get everything ready. That's amazing. I'm all for that. Get the tree, get the gifts. That's great. But that's that actually in church history was only a small part of it. Advent started the church calendar year. It was a time of fasting and prayer. It was a time of holding on to this reality. God keeps his promises. Look to Jesus. He came. He took on flesh. He lived among us. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God. And we believe in that. We hold on to that. But we're still living in pain, suffering, sickness, and death. And so we hold on to the second advent. He's coming again. 
And so the church would pause. I mean, we're so busy this time of year, but the church historically has given us a gift. This is a time to slow down, to pause, to reflect, to hold on to the promises of God, look back and look forward. And so this week I was, I was wondering, why does God make these promises? And I, I think it's this. I think there's more than this, but I think it is. The purpose of the promises of God are for our perseverance and for our praise. We hold on to the promises that are yet to come because we still live in a world of brokenness, sickness, suffering, betrayal, sin, and death. We know Jesus has, has bought us forever, but, but we're waiting for him to come again. And so they're for our perseverance and they're for our praise. You are a Lord who remembers. You are a Lord who is gracious. So let us position ourselves as a church under the waterfall of God's grace this Advent season and slow down, pause, and reflect. I want to give you just uh, one resource. You can go to our website, redemptionparker.org. It'll pop up. You can download it. It'll, it's it's uh, John Piper's book. We got that there. Good news of great joy. It's 25 devotions. You can download for free. You can do a PDF or put it on your Kindle or your iPad. It's like two pages a day that you'll read, just kind of slowing down, taking five minutes to ponder Advent and intentionally slow down and hold on to the promises. And then, uh, then you end your time, whatever it is, five minutes, 10 minutes with this simple prayer. You're like, I don't know how to pray. Well, that's okay. This is the prayer I want you to pray. Jesus, you have come. You will come again. Show me today how to live between these two realities. That's it. Jesus, you have come. You will come again. Show me today how to live between these two realities. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you have come. You will come again. Show us today how to live between these two realities. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.